Well, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 20. Matthew uh, chapter uh, 20 for our time of study in the Word this morning. Um, We're going to just be looking at verses 20 through uh, 28. And if you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would be Jesus Helps an Ambitious Mom. And I hope this message will be an encouragement to uh, all of us and especially to you, you moms. Every mom, is it not true, wants the very best for her children? And in Matthew 20, we actually will see a mom who really wanted the very best for uh, her sons. Of all the moms that we see on the pages of Scripture, I don't think anyone would ever argue with the assertion that the mom that we see in Matthew chapter 20 today is the most ambitious mom ever to grace the pages of uh, Scripture. The mom I'm talking about is the wife of Zebedee and the mother of James and John, who were two disciples of Jesus who enjoyed a most privileged position in relation to Jesus. We all know there were many people when Jesus was on earth who followed uh, Jesus. There were hundreds of people who followed him, but among those followers was the core group of the 12. And of the 12, there was an inner circle of three men that Jesus drew into his confidence in a special way. And the three men in this innermost circle are Peter And the two brothers, James and John. It was these three men whom Jesus invited to join him on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was these three who uniquely saw his glory. It would be these three who would later join Jesus by his invitation in the Garden of Gethsemane to witness his agony on the night in which he was arrested, leading to his crucifixion. So James and John are not just among the 12 disciples of Jesus. They are top-tier disciples who rank in the top three of the 12. And imagine how proud and how grateful the mother of James and John would have been about this. The long-awaited Messiah waited for for centuries has finally come, and her two boys are two of the three closest disciples to Jesus. If this mother had a car, uh, the bumper sticker on her car would not have said, Soccer Mom. It would have said, Kingdom Mom. And in smaller print, it might have said, my boys are in the king's innermost circle. That's what some of you would have done, I'm sure, if that was your two sons in Jesus' innermost circle. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, James and John heard some very good news from Jesus. In that verse, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, truly, I say to you that in the regeneration When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
So based on just that statement alone, James and John would know that they will sit on two of the 12 thrones of Israel, reigning as sub-regents of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And imagine how their mom would have felt upon hearing this news. She could have had another bumper sticker that said, my boys rule. There's one wrench that's being thrown into all of this, though. Ever since Jesus revealed himself on the mountain of transfiguration, look at what he's been doing as he's been heading to Jerusalem for that epic Passion Week where he would suffer and die and then be raised. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 20, and this is the verses right before our passage today, the text says, And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem... He took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. From that alone, The disciples would know that some heavy stuff is going to happen when they get to Jerusalem, but they would know that somehow Jesus is going to prevail in the end. And it's right in this very context that the events of our passage happen today when this mother's ambitions for her sons becomes revealed at the feet of Jesus. I've I've read a number of commentators on this passage, and there are many commentators who fault this mother for what she does in our passage today. But to her credit, she does the right thing in bringing her ambitions for her sons to Jesus. And in the end, she receives much gracious help from Jesus. What happens in our passage today should encourage you moms to have high kingdom ambitions for your children. This passage should encourage you to bring your ambitions for your children to the feet of Jesus as you pray for your children, knowing that Jesus will do the right thing with what you bring to him, and he will also give proper shape to those ambitions. That's exactly what he does for the mother of James and John in our passage today. So here's how we'll break down our study of this passage. We'll observe six acts of Jesus to help a mom who had high kingdom ambitions for uh, her sons. The first thing he does is he receives her worship in front of her sons. He receives her worship in front of her sons. Look at what happens beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons bowing down. The Greek word that is translated bowing down is translated as worship over 50 times, five zero times in the New Testament. So we learn something here about Jesus, and that is that he is worthy of such worship from a mom and that he receives this kind of worship. He doesn't rebuke her for bowing in worship before her. 
We also learn something here about this mother that is good. We learn that she was a worshiper of Jesus. She didn't worship her sons as some mothers do. She worshiped Jesus and bowed before him. Not only did she worship Jesus, but the text says she came to Jesus with her two sons. So this was not simply a mom who came to Jesus alone, nor was it a mom who sent her sons to Jesus. She was a mom who came herself to Jesus and she brought her sons with her. Interestingly, the participle that is translated bowing down is in the singular. So the passage is technically only telling us that this mother is bowing in worship before Jesus. This tells us that she is not ashamed to be seen by her sons bowing down in homage and worship to Jesus. James and John are blessed to have such a mom who is willing to worship Jesus so freely in front of them. We also observe that when she came to Jesus on this occasion, she did not simply worship him. Verse 20 tells us that she came to Jesus bowing down and making a request of him. And we'll, we'll see in a moment that this request is an intercession that she will utter on behalf of her son. So we know at the very least that this is a mom who prayed for her sons and sought to obtain great things from God on behalf of her sons. And James and John are blessed to have such a mom. It's interesting when we combine this account in Matthew 20 with Mark's account in Mark chapter 10, we learn in Mark 10:35 that it is the sons who end up speaking first, evidently, and say to Jesus, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. So imagine Jesus hearing this from the sons and then looking at their mom who is bowed in worship before him, Jesus then speaks to her. And this leads us to the second act of Jesus in helping this mother who had such high kingdom ambitions for her sons. And that is he invites her to state her kingdom desires for her sons. He invites her to state her kingdom desires for her sons. Observe what he does in verse 21. The text says, and he said to her, what do you wish? What do you want? He's inviting her to ask. Evidently, Jesus wants to know the heart of this mother. He wants her to put her desires for her sons on the table, even though he knows already that her heart may not be in the most perfect of places. His invitation for her to speak now and state her wishes teaches us that true faith is not always waiting until your heart is perfect before you bring the contents of your heart to Jesus. True faith is expressing your imperfect heart to Jesus and then giving him opportunity to shepherd you in whatever ways are needful. 
Jesus said to her, what do you wish? Listen to her reply in verse 21. She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. What an amazing request this is. Have you ever prayed this for your children, moms? Probably not. Again, many people are quick to criticize this mother, but let's, let's try to focus on the good and what she's saying here. First of all, she tells Jesus to command or literally to just say that something happened. Clearly, she's recognizing that Jesus is king who just simply speaks the word and whatever he says happens. She truly recognizes his authority and power. Also speaking to Jesus, she refers to the kingdom as whose kingdom? Your kingdom, meaning Jesus' kingdom. She understands that the kingdom of God is not her kingdom. She understands that the kingdom of God is not her son's kingdom. Ultimately, she's not going to be asking Jesus to let her son sit in Jesus' seat She understands that Jesus is king and he's the only one who should sit on the throne that he sits on. Ultimately, she wants Jesus to sit in his seat. But as for what she wants for her two sons, look what she says in verse 21. Command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. There's much to appreciate, however flawed this may be, even in this request. This request shows this mom's unshakable confidence that Jesus is going to prevail against whatever comes against him when he arrives in Jerusalem. Yes, she knows that Jesus has powerful enemies. And yes, she knows that somehow, some way, really bad stuff is going to happen against Jesus in Jerusalem. But in the end, this mother knows that Jesus is going to triumph and that he will establish his kingdom. And this mother knows that when his triumph comes, he will rule. And she's saying, Jesus, when you've triumphed and established your kingdom, could you give to my sons seats in your kingdom, one on your right and one on your left. I think we can all appreciate something good in the boldness of this mother. However flawed her request may be in the eyes of some, in her mind, her thought is, why not take the chance and ask? Later, the apostle James, or the brother of Jesus, James, is going to say, you have not because you ask not. This mom does not want to find out after all is said and done that her sons could have had those two seats if she would have just asked. Her thought is, why not ask and take the initiative and seek this from the Lord? Again, maybe there's something faulty in this mom's request, but before we criticize her request, we should realize and appreciate the fact that she could have done worse. She could have asked Jesus to give her sons worldly fame and great wealth. 
She could have asked Jesus to make an easy and comfortable life for her sons. She could have said, Jesus, here's the one thing I want. Please protect my sons from suffering. She could have said, when Jesus said, what do you want? Think about what you might have said as a mother if you had that opportunity to voice whatever your desires are to Jesus. She could have asked Jesus, Lord, here's what I want. Could you keep my boys from ever moving away from me? Could you command that my two sons will stay at my side, one on my right and one on my left for the rest of my life and never move away from me? But she doesn't ask any of that. Evidently, she's given her sons to Jesus. She's caught up in the larger vision of Christ's kingdom. And here she is asking Jesus to give her sons a vital place in his kingdom by his side. One on his right and one on his left. It seems that what this mother wants more than anything else is for her sons to be close to Jesus in his kingdom forever by his side. That's a wonderful thing. Interestingly, the Gospel of Mark tells us that it was these two sons who asked for this from Jesus. And Mark, in his account, makes no mention of the mother. But Matthew wants us to know that James and John's mother was here. Clearly, this is something that James and John are wanting also from Jesus, and they're asking too. But in addition to them asking, their mother is asking also. And that's what Matthew wants us to focus on. So let me ask you, what would you do if you were Jesus and a mother approached you making this request on behalf of her two sons? Whatever you might do, observe what Jesus does. Amazingly, he does not rebuke this mother. He doesn't say shame on you for asking such a thing. Instead, he uses the opportunity to teach this mother and her sons some lessons that they will never forget. And this leads to the third act of Jesus in helping this mom who had such high kingdom ambitions for her sons, and that is he instructs her about the kingdom request that she is making for her sons. He instructs her about the request that she is making for her sons. Observe his response in verse 22. The text says, but Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Now notice he's not rebuking her for asking what she has asked. His only corrective is to say, I don't think you understand the full scope of what you're asking here. This mom does not understand that in asking for the two highest seats in Christ's kingdom next to his seat, she is at the same time asking for things that would have given her pause if she were aware of what was included. She doesn't obviously understand yet that Jesus must get to his seat by way of the suffering of the cross. 
And if that is the route that Jesus must take to get to his seat, then the route to the seats on his right and left must also involve suffering. This mom doesn't realize it, but she's just asked Jesus to put her sons on a path of suffering. Tremendous suffering. So Jesus turns to her sons and asks them a question in verse 22. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Some manuscripts add the words or be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with. We don't know if those extra words belong in Matthew's account here, but we know Jesus said those words about baptism because we find them in Mark's gospel in Mark 10, 38. We know that Jesus is asking this question of the sons because the verb able here is masculine plural in the Greek. So the mom has made the request and now Jesus turns to quiz her sons on their readiness to make the journey to these two seats that they obviously want. And he asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Now, we know the cup that Jesus is about to drink, right? It's the cup of his suffering on the cross. This is the suffering about which Jesus will pray in the garden saying, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. It's the cup of his suffering on the cross that Jesus must drink. Jesus knows what he's about to endure. He's been predicting that. James and John may have had some vague notion of the suffering that Jesus is about to endure, but they have no idea of the full scope of the suffering that awaits him they have no idea that the cup is the cross and all the suffering that was entailed in that. But whatever naive understanding they had of that suffering that Jesus would endure, they offer a sincere response in verse 22. Look what the text says. They said to him, we are able. In other words, they're saying we are ready and we are able to drink the same cup of suffering that you will drink, Jesus. Now, how would you have responded to that if you were Jesus? If Jesus wanted to be cynical, he could have laughed condescendingly at James and John's naive answer, knowing that they're all going to fall away from him on the night of his arrest. But instead, amazingly, Jesus focuses on the genuineness of their desire to suffer with him. Look at what he says in verse 23. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. This is not simply a promise that suffering is going to come their way. This is an assurance that they, James and John, will end up being faithful and true to their word and they will willingly drink the cup of suffering that is brought to them. This is Jesus in this moment looking into the future and seeing James and John proving faithful. And here in this moment, Jesus is telling them that he sees their faithfulness. 
in the days to come manifested in their willingness to drink willingly the cup of suffering that will confront them on the road ahead. Jesus' point here is to say that in asking for the two highest seats in his kingdom is tantamount to asking for the cup of suffering that must be drunk on the path to those seats. Jesus is saying, you ask for seats next to me. I'll address that specifically in a second. But right now, what I can assure you is that no one gets to those seats who doesn't drink of the cup that I will drink on my way to my seat. And I assure you, James and John, that the two of you will prove faithful and true to your word, and you will drink willingly the cup of my suffering. We know from later revelation, do we not, that these words came true? In about 10 years from this very moment, James, the brother of John, will become the first apostle to be killed for his faith. In the book of Acts, he will be killed with a sword in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. John will suffer also, and he will end up in the end experiencing exile on the island of Patmos. Jesus' answer so far, though, is only a partial reply. The desire of this mother and her sons is for the seats on Jesus' right and left, Jesus needs to respond to this particular request, and he does. And this brings us to the fourth act of Jesus in helping this mom who had such high kingdom ambitions for her sons. And that is he points to his father as the assigner of seats in his kingdom. He points to his father as the assigner of seats in his kingdom. Observe what he says in verse 23. He says, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. It may seem weird to us to see Jesus here deferring to his father on this mother's request, but it actually makes perfect sense in giving this reply. Jesus is modeling something for this mom. He's modeling for this mom and for James and John a complete unconcern about seating arrangements in his kingdom in a future day. He's completely fine trusting his father with such details. And he knows that whatever my father decides will be best. In saying this, Jesus is encouraging this mother and her sons to join him entrusting their heavenly father with such details. There's something else here that we should notice in Jesus' answer. Jesus is basically telling this mother that the father has already decided on who's going to take those seats. This is why Jesus says, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And the tense there is perfect tense. It, these seats, is for those for whom it has already been prepared by my Father. 
In other words, the matter is already decided. The seats have already been prepared by the Father in the past with the abiding standing result that those seats now stand ready for the particular persons whom the Father has already decided will take those seats. So in a way, the mom is late in her request. So that's Jesus' reply to this mother's request. It's in the father's hands, and it's already decided. But it's at this point that we become aware that it's not just Jesus and this mom and James and John who are in the picture. There are others who have been listening in on this exchange. And those others are the 10 other disciples of Jesus. They heard what this mom and her two boys had asked, and they heard Jesus reply and observed their response in verse 24. And hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers. They're ticked. Because in asking for her own two sons to get these seats on Jesus' right and left, this mom was essentially asking that Jesus give those seats to her sons and not to any of the other ten. So obviously the ten are offended, which reveals that they felt just as much, if not more, entitled to those two seats than they thought James and John were. We learn in the gospel accounts that at a couple different points around this very time, the disciples were arguing with each other over which of them was the greatest in God's kingdom. Imagine that as a topic of conversation. Imagine gathering in your care group and the discussion question, question is, which person in this care group do you think is the greatest in God's kingdom? Do you think you are? And if so, state your reasons. And then imagine the discussion. Well, here's why I think I'm really the greatest person in God's kingdom in this care group. And then others are like, no, because you got this and this and this wrong with you. And I'm strong where you are weak. I mean, how do you have a conversation about this? At least twice they were having this argument. So we know that there was enough selfish ambition in each of these other 10, including James and John, to be offended at anyone who wants a higher position in the kingdom than them. And notice who they're angry at. They don't seem to be angry at the mom. I think they understand why a mom would ask and make such a request. According to the text, they're indignant with the two brothers, obviously for letting their mom make such a request and for joining her in making this request and possibly for putting her up to it. Mom, could, could you go to Jesus and ask uh, him to give us these seats. Well, Jesus witnesses the whole scene. He sees the indignation of the 10 and Jesus is like, this is a teachable moment. He seizes the moment to teach them all the 10 James and John and their mother, a valuable lesson. And this brings us to the next act of Jesus and helping this mom who had such high kingdom ambitions for her sons and that is he teaches about true greatness in God's kingdom. He teaches about true greatness in God's kingdom. Observe what Jesus does in verse 25. 
He sees what this mother has asked, and he now sees everyone angry at the two brothers for trying to obtain for themselves the top two seats in God's kingdom. So he acts, and look what he says, verse 25, but Jesus called them to himself. Isn't that beautiful? He called them to himself. This is Jesus' first step in resolving any conflict between those who follow him. He doesn't first call us to his teaching or call us to a list of recommendations for conflict resolution. He first calls us to himself. And once they're all gathered around him, observe what happens. Verse 25, Jesus called them to himself And said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. This is the way it is in the world with rulers and those who are esteemed to be great men. Those who have governmental authority lord it over the people that they are over. In other words, they use their political power to impose their will on others in order to make people do what they want them to do in order to serve their own ends. Jesus speaks also of their great men, speaking of men who are highly esteemed by others. And Jesus says men who attain to such positions of influence over others naturally tend to use their power to exercise authority over others in order to get others to do their bidding. It's what people in power naturally do. This is why the desire for power comes naturally to all of us, right? Years ago, I I asked my oldest son, who's not here this morning, which is why I feel free to share this. (laughs) I asked him years ago when he was a young kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, well, dad, and and he told me two options that he was considering. And one of them was to be the dictator of a country. Why did he why did he want that? Because when you're a dictator of a country, you get to lord it over others and make everybody in your world do what you want them to do. I'm grateful that my son went in a different career direction (laughs) and made a different choice. But we understand that desire, don't we? We're all natural born dictators looking for a country to rule. That's that's what we are. And some people obtain that power and then they use that power for selfish ends to get people to do what they want them to do, to serve their interest. But look what Jesus says next, verse 26. He says, it is not this way. In other words, it's not to be this way among you. In other words, among you men, you should not be clamoring for the most power so that you can exert your will over others and get everyone to do your own bidding. As for what they should do instead, 
Listen to what Jesus says. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Notice here, Jesus does not rebuke the desire for greatness in God's kingdom. He doesn't say whoever wishes to be great among you, shame on you for wanting that. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, whoever wishes to be great among you should be your servant. He's teaching his disciples and teaching us that in God's kingdom, there is a path to greatness. And that path to greatness involves first becoming the servant of others. In the topsy-turvy world of God's kingdom, the way to go up is to go down first. And the way to achieve greatness is to become the menial servant of those among whom you want to be great. Jesus then intensifies his language. I mean, a servant was lowly esteemed in Bible times, but at least a servant was higher than a slave. A slave was the lowest of the low on the social ladder. In fact, being a slave was not even on the social ladder. It was the floor you put the ladder on. A slave didn't even own himself. He was owned by his master. And in verse 27, Jesus says, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. That's the way to become first and the way to become great in God's kingdom In other words, he's saying anyone who wants to be ranked first among people should seek to lower himself to the position of a slave in relation of those very people and serve them. Now, what does that mean, practically speaking? I don't think Jesus is saying if you want to end up being greater than others, then here's how to get greater than them. Serve them. And be a slave to them. And if you do that, you might end up being ranked higher than them in God's kingdom. And you'll achieve that desire. I mean, imagine someone thinking that way. Imagine me bringing you a cup of coffee this morning. And you ask me, why why are you serving me in this way? And imagine that I say, well, because my goal in life is to be ranked higher than you in God's kingdom. (laughs) And serving you today is a part of how I intend to end up being greater than you. If that's really my thinking, it reveals that I'm not really being your servant. It means that I'm still very much a slave to myself and my own ambition rather than being your slave who's wanting to serve you and your best interest. So here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you notice within yourself that you want to be great among your brothers and sisters in Christ, then serve them. In serving them in this way, it will change your orientation and reshape your goals. In addition to that, God will look upon you as you serve and he will deem you to be great Because you will be behaving in a way that perfectly matches God's definition of greatness. Because in God's kingdom, 
Serving others is not simply the path to greatness. Serving others is greatness in God's definition. If I could say a word to young people this morning, I would plead with you to listen to me on this. This also applies to adults too, but young people be the kind of person who serves others and who lifts people up rather than being someone who tears people down. It's easy to tear people down as a backhanded way of building yourself up, isn't it? You're afraid someone will outshine you and gain the affections of your circle of friends. So what do you do? You criticize them for their imperfections and you run them down. Why? Why do we find satisfaction in running other people down? You know why? Because we're petty little tyrants reigning over the kingdom of me and wanting to be first in the eyes of other people. We want people to like us and respect us more than the person we're running down. And if someone's a threat to us in that way, we run them down. And, and seriously, I dare you to do this. I call upon all of you young people to do this one thing from now on. If someone comes up to you or in the course of conversation, they're criticizing and running someone else down. Just assume that that person doing the criticizing is basically saying, please view me as greater than the person I'm running down. And then just say to them, so what I hear you saying is you, you want me to view you as greater than the person you're criticizing, right? Am I understanding you correctly? Just say that to them. I'll give you a quarter <laughs> for every time you say that to somebody. Seriously, if some people, both young and old, I've seen this and young people and those older, it can be said that their sense of self is so fragile their sense of place in the world is so delicate that it virtually requires them to always be running other people down. It's like if they stop running other people down, their sense of self and their sense of place in the world would collapse. Criticizing others is, is how they stay afloat in an uncertain world. And I, I'm blood earnest about this. Look back on your life over this past week Read your texts. Rethink the conversations that you have had and ask yourself, how many things have I said about other people with the intent of running them down? And to whatever degree you see that you have done that this week, repent and resolve by the grace of God to be someone who serves and builds others up. That's greatness. In God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant and the slave of all. Help them to be great rather than always being on a campaign to beat them down and make sure that no one ever sees them as great. You might hear this and say, man, Pastor Milton, that's a lovely concept. And I, I would do this, Pastor Milton, but there's no one in my life that I see who is worthy of my service in this way. Well, this brings us to the final act of Jesus in helping this mom 
who had such high kingdom ambitions for her sons. And that is, he points to himself as the example of true greatness in God's kingdom. He points to himself as the example of true greatness in God's kingdom. Look at what he says in verse 28. He says, just as, and guys, this is why he called them to himself, because he's going to point to himself, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. This is what Jesus has been doing over the last three and a half years, using his greatness and his position as first among people to serve them, doing miracles at every turn. He has more power and more authority than anyone else on the planet. And what does he do with that power and authority? He raises loved ones from the dead and he gives sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf and speech to the dumb. He gives power to crippled feet and deliverance to demon-possessed people. And he gives forgiveness to sinners. Jesus came to serve, and that's what he's been doing the last three or so years to the point that he's often been without a place to lay his head at night. This is why on the occasion when the disciples will later be arguing in one of their conversations over which of them is the greatest in God's kingdom, Jesus will gird himself with a towel and wash the disciples' feet, engaging while they argued in the lowly task of a servant on their behalf. Jesus is clearly the greatest one in God's kingdom and he shows his greatness by lowering himself in relation to others and serving them. That's greatness. And the truth is that no one Jesus ever served was worthy of his services. And neither are you. Jesus had every reason to scoff at everyone else and to mock their imperfections. He had every reason to give the cold shoulder to everyone he knew because he was perfect and they were not. Even in this moment, he had every reason to be ticked at his disciples for their immaturity. But instead, what does the perfect and holy Jesus do? With regard to these deeply flawed and broken human beings in front of him, he loves them, he befriends them, he teaches them, he heals them. He does so many good things for broken sinners like you and me when he was on earth that John says the world itself could not contain the books that could be written of all that he did. And that's not all. Standing here at this point of his ministry in Matthew 20, Jesus hasn't even done his greatest act of service yet. Look at the end of verse 28. Jesus says, The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word translated ransom is the Greek word for redemption. It speaks of delivering someone through the paying of a price. Guys, we were all under God's judgment and under God's righteous wrath. We all deserve to be banished from God's kingdom forever. But Jesus gave himself as a ransom for our salvation so that through his shed blood, 
He might satisfy the justice of God and deliver us from the demands of God's justice and give us an undeserved place in his kingdom. Jesus had every reason to just spend his time running us down, talking bad about us, rejecting us forever. But what does he do instead? He vacated his seat in heaven and came to earth and gave up his life to deliver us from God's righteous wrath and to give us a place in his kingdom. This whole incident started off with the mother asking Jesus to give her two sons, the second and third highest seats in God's kingdom. She and her sons and the other 10 disciples now are basically putting the pieces together and knowing that Jesus has vacated his seat for a time and he will even be giving up his very life in order to redeem them and thereby purchase for them a place in God's kingdom. For them to get into God's kingdom at all, Jesus will have to surrender his life and he's willing to do that. How can you argue over seats in the kingdom after hearing this? How can you write people off as being unworthy of your service and your love when you have a savior who had every reason to write you off but who instead chose to die so that you might be granted an undeserved place in his kingdom. If the greatest person in God's kingdom, Jesus Christ, made himself the servant of all and gave up his life to deliver us from the kingdom of Satan and to bring us into the kingdom of God, if the path to his throne involves such sacrificial service to others, then how can we, saved by him, not do the same toward one another? Such behavior is not simply the path to greatness in God's kingdom. It is greatness because it's Christ-likeness. And guys, you and I are never greater in God's kingdom than when we are imitating him, the greatest one. In God's kingdom. Perhaps that's the greatest thing we learn in our lesson, in our story today. In the story, we see what the path to greatness in God's kingdom entails. If you're here today and you want to be in God's kingdom and you want to be a great one in God's kingdom, come to Jesus. Believe in him as the one who died for your redemption be humbled by that and then turn around and seek to live your life in growing imitation of him being the servant of others for the glory of this one, Jesus. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ, I call upon you to believe in him today. There is a ransom that has been paid for your deliverance. The redemption has been provided be humble enough to recognize that you need this redemption from God's wrath and run to Jesus and believe in him. Today is also a good day to ask you parents, what are your ambitions for your children? Is it your ambition that they achieve academic success and then get a high paying job in one of the top professions and then be known as one of the greatest people in their field? 
Is it your desire that they be esteemed great in the eyes of the world? Is it your ambition that they live a comfortable life? Is it your ambition that is your attitude? I don't care what they do. I just want them to stay close to me. Or is your desire that they be truly great in God's kingdom and be as close to Jesus as possible wherever that may take them? I've always known all my life that my mom's heart for me is that I be in the center of God's will for my life, whatever that means and wherever that takes me. For the last 28 or so years of my life, I've lived 2,000 miles away from my mom. And over the length of that time, I can't tell you how many times I've heard my mom say to me, Listen to what she said. I would rather you be in the center of God's will 2,000 miles away from me than to be out of God's will and living right next door to me. I've always appreciated that I love having a mom who wants me closer to Jesus than to her. A mom who has kingdom ambitions for me and for all of her children All of us who are Christian parents want our children to be great in God's kingdom. And if we want that, we should pray for our children and raise them to believe in Jesus and be saved by his sacrifice and then also to be humbled by his sacrifice. And while we're at it, we should pray the same for ourselves so that we can show our children what greatness in God's kingdom looks like through the example that we set. By imitating Christ and being the servant of all. Guys, if that's the essence of the definition of greatness in God's kingdom, then have at it, parents. Be as ambitious for your children as you want to be. And a final word to children, to young people. Children, make it your goal to be a servant. What are the words that you want to describe you? When people speak about you, what words mean a lot to you that they would use those words to describe you? Smart, athletic, good-looking. What what are the words that the adjectives that you would want, the nouns that you would want used to describe you? How about the word servant? That's greatness in God's kingdom. Don't be lazy. Don't be content to just have everybody do everything for you and around you. Be grateful for the ways that people serve you. Don't take that for granted, but pitch in. Help your mom and your dad and your siblings. Help out, pitch in, and serve the people in your care group and in your church family. And also, while you're serving, give your life to something that will survive the fires of Judgment Day. You don't want to give your life to something that in the end you stand before God at the judgment and it's all going up in smoke. Give your life to laboring for a kingdom, no matter what your occupation, laboring for a kingdom that will never be shaken and consider it your greatest honor to simply be in that kingdom and to be able to serve other people and to help them to become great 
in God's kingdom, even if that costs you your life. That is the definition of greatness in God's kingdom. And I want that greatness for you, and I know your parents do as well. If your mom and dad have kingdom ambitions for you, nothing will make them happier. And most importantly, nothing will please God more, and nothing will so contribute to your eternal happiness than to live in this way. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would just cause an outpouring of grace upon all of us, young and old, and help us to experience the greatness of Jesus Christ, to be students of him, students of his ways. He is the great one in God's kingdom, and we are never greater than when we are living in imitation of him. So help us to be like you, Lord, to be saved by you. And then to be saved into being like you. And help us as parents to seek to influence our children towards this ambition. And help us, young and old, to live this out. That people who don't know Christ would observe the way we live, the way that we relate to one another and conclude there is no earthly explanation for what I see here. Then God is in their midst and God is operating in this family. God is operating in this person's life. And whatever that is, I want it for myself. Help us as a church to be great in your kingdom in this humble way and to be filled with a congregation of people, men and women, young and old, who are living out this ethic for the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to give our offerings to you. Receive these gifts that we give and this offering, Lord, and do much with everything that is given for the glory of this one, Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for our salvation. We give ourselves to you also in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.